Well, when I thought about this two-platform series that I was doing, I, I thought that in this first one, I would be talking about our stories, about our myths. And I've realized as I prepared more and read in preparation and got ready to talk with you today that really I should have titled this Our Worlds. Last week, Mary led what sounds like a pretty fabulous multi-generational service. My four-year-old was there and came back and gave me a play-by-play, including all of the songs which she sang for me again um, in, the, in, in our living room, uh, about the importance of story. Um, and, and I know that all of you told some stories together. There are a lot of kinds of stories that are important, and the stories that I really wanted to focus on for this platform were fantastical stories, imaginative stories, stories that really opened up the idea of other worlds and the windows between them. I have always been interested in those kinds of stories. I wonder how many of you, like me as a child, whenever you put a coat away in a closet, just put a hand out to feel the back of it. Anyone? Yeah, some, yay, it's okay. (laughs) Be proud. Right at the back was the back of that closet there. I have always been looking in wardrobes to see if beyond the winter coats and the parkas, there might be an entryway to a winter wonderland just beyond, searching for other worlds. And so I think it was really clever of me, actually, to plan a platform address where I could dive into those worlds again as legitimate research for my Sunday platform. As I was reading that, and in particular for this platform, I reread the beginning and then went through the entire His Dark Materials trilogy, which was one of the more recent fantasy novels in the young adult fantasy genre. Um, as, I was, as I was reading that... Um, trilogy and preparing for the platform, I saw one of those little um, memes that are going around Facebook, you know, the, the sort of elegantly dressed people in a pastel background with a cute phrase. And the one that really stuck with me was um, the definition of a book hangover, the inability to start a new book because you're still living in the last book's world. Now, that can happen to us with all kinds of books. Sometimes I just really want to pretend that I live in Jane Austen's world, and I'm not ready to start the realization that I don't. But it's especially true for me when I'm immersing myself in the world of fantasy, when the book has offered to me a world unlike anything that I've ever experienced. Do you know what I mean, really feeling as though you're living in that world while you're reading the book? As though at any moment... An armored bear might appear from behind a tree. Actually, I think the armored bears are a lot bigger than trees. So around a corner or a building. As though there might be a talking mouse just, you know, right there in the middle of platform. That idea that the world comes so alive for you. That's how I feel when I read some of these novels. For me, that's an experience that I bring from childhood, and I think it's a childlike experience in many ways. Our our ability to allow our imagination to expand so broadly that it inhabits all of who we are and really how we are in the world around us. And so many of the books within this genre are really within young adult and kind of childhood fantasy. That's the section you'd find them in in the bookstore. 
But always those books have also been read by adults. In fact, frequently those books are studied in college classes because I think they offer a sort of crossover to adult concepts and ideas, a way frequently of working out morality and ethics, but also exploring theology and metaphysical ideas as we explore those different worlds available to us in fantasy literature. So as I thought about this platform in particular, three books stood out for me. And I'm going to ask for a show of hands to see how many of you have read some of these books. My guess is very few have read the the third, but probably many of you have read the first, uh, which is the Narnia series, which starts with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Most people. Or have seen the movie. There was actually a a good movie a couple of years ago, I think, that came out. So the Narnia series, which is, I think, a six-book series, was written by C.S. Lewis, who in his non-fantasy writing time was actually a very serious Christian theologian and, and is in the classification that could be termed a Christian apologist, which means somebody who really writes in defense and in support of Christianity. Uh, and and his, his theological work is, is excellent. He was a, a beautiful writer within that, um, within that uh, genre and as well as within the, the fantasy genre. The Narnia series has through it a lot of Christian themes tied through, and I actually use the very last of that series, which is a book called The Last Battle, as my source text in a religious studies class in college, a class that focused on apocalyptic literature. And C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle was a perfect example of solid apocalyptic literature uh, within the Christian tradition, even though it included all of the kind of talking animals and, and, you know, fantasy elements that the rest of the Narnia series includes. In the Narnia books, we find the wardrobe as the gateway to the other world. So if just a moment ago you were wondering why I was feeling for the back of closets, uh, that's why. Uh, You can first access the world by... um, the children first access this other world by going through a wardrobe. The key in the Narnia series is that you can't be looking for the other world in the back of the wardrobe. So it was a, it was a catch-22 when I was a child. I would feel for the back of the wardrobe, but then I knew that if I was feeling for the back of the wardrobe, I wasn't going to be able to get there. So you'd have to kind of like pretend you were putting your parka up, and maybe your hand slipped to the back of the wardrobe. It was a very complicated practice as a child, uh, apparently every time I hung a coat up. So then the second book I'm wondering if people have read is the gold, it's known in America as the Golden Compass. It's His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. A few people. There was a movie of the Golden Compass a couple of years ago as well, so some of you might have seen that. And the Golden Compass was actually written by Philip Pullman as a humanist response to the Narnia series. So Pullman felt that the Narnia series, as it was really rooted in Christian theology, needed kind of a... um, I guess what he would say is an an atheist response. Philip Pullman describes himself as an agnostic atheist, those two words together, and he's a member of humanist and secular organizations in his native Britain. And the book, the series, His Dark Materials, is definitely anti, kind of anti-authoritarian church, anti-traditional interpretation of doctrine. Having just read it, though, I would say it is hardly secular or atheist. It's actually highly spiritual and religious in theme. And it talks about, um, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, later, but 
but really talks about kind of collective consciousness and um, our involvement in the universe in a really deep and religious way. In the Golden Compass, there are many worlds that occur simultaneously, and the characters move between and among those worlds through a series of windows, um, kind of portals that open up as the as the plot thickens, and um, and there's great danger coming to the world. More and more of the windows between those worlds open up. One of those worlds includes uh, armored polar bears, which is the image that many people associate from the movie trailers. So that's why I've been seeing armored polar bears all around D.C. Uh, recently as I've been reading that. And then the third, which I would guess very few people have read, is Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising series. Anyone? Oh, actually the same as The Golden Compass. Great series, isn't it? Right? And and that, that has... Um, uh, a set of characters, the old ones, who access different worlds uh, really through by traveling through time in many ways and kind of being able to inhabit our world on a different plane and, and see different levels to our world. So there are these three disparate world views, really disparate worlds and disparate world views, you know, a Christian understanding, a humanist approach, and then the dark is rising, which kind of combines the two and really um, pulls on sort of Celtic uh, spirituality as well. And so I began to wonder what binds these books together, what binds the worlds that they create together. And I have some themes that I want to share with you. The first theme, of course, is really the idea of fantasy, talking animals in many cases, Um, themes that seem to come through in almost every fairy tale and fantasy novel. Beautiful, crafty, evil women frequently appear, the White Witch in Narnia, Mrs. Coulter in the Golden Compass series. And then there's a theme as well, um, kind of balancing beautiful, crafty women of self-sacrificial love. And we'll actually talk about that a little bit more next week when we consider heroes who often tap into that theme of self-sacrificial love. Another theme that I see working through these books, particularly the ones with different worlds, is a consideration of who are people. What makes something a person? versus an animal. When we have mice that talk and polar bears that wear armor, how do we know that they're different from the regular mice who also frequently inhabit these worlds? We know right away as we, as we explore these books and their worlds that the talking animals are not animals but people somehow. They're not particularly human, but they're different from regular animals The Golden Compass series actually um, refers to that specifically as one of the characters in in a world sees creatures that look a little bit like elephants except that they have a triangular um, skeletal, uh, diamond skeletal structure instead of a central spine. And so they've adapted to move on wheels made of seed pods. So that's in the uh, third book. You'll want to keep going to get there. And, And the character on seeing them says, these beings weren't human. But they were people, she told herself. It's not them, they're us. So there's an exploration as we look at really fantastical creatures that don't inhabit our current world, an exploration of what we share with these creatures and therefore what it is that makes us people in some way, what it is that binds us together and makes us different from mice that don't talk. There's also an exploration of what makes some people special, the idea of special wisdom or special powers being set apart for something else, a key concept going through all of these fantasy novels. 
Another theme that many of them explore is the idea of good and evil. Always these worlds have some kind of threat of imminent danger, and often you can see that even in their titles. The Dark is Rising series does not refer just to the nighttime coming, but to the great deep dark rising. In the Golden Compass, there's actually an apocalyptic war coming, and in Narnia as well, uh, as it mounts toward that final novel, The Last Battle. Dark forces, evil forces rise in the world, and the heroes of the novels must work to bring good into the world. So there's a need for heroes and heroines, for recognizing danger, for action and choice as we work to bring good in the face of evil. The other worlds are never Edens, however they may at first appear when you walk through that wardrobe into the winter wonderland. There's always something darker behind the tree or over the hill. Related, I think, to that theme is the theme of moral choices, a key concept in fantasy novels, and the challenges of making those choices. And I think this is one of the ways that you see the the genre work both within child and young adult um, literature and moving over into adulthood, because really you see the characters struggling with some of the moral choices that we face in our own lives as well. In some ways, I think it's the emphasis on the gray area of moral choices that makes the Golden Compass series the most intriguing and perhaps um, that fits it most into an idea of kind of progressive, uh, the progressive religious tradition or the humanist tradition. The idea that choices are never black or white, right or wrong, but that they carry with them unintended consequences, gray areas that we grapple with those choices as we move forward. Many of the characters, and especially the heroine in The Gold Compass, really struggle with that possibility. That, that ties into that idea of transitioning from childhood to adulthood as well. The realization as we become adults that, that more and more of our choices are and have always been gray areas as we grow into our own moral agency. And I think you see in all of these novels and in the genre at large the idea of uh, children growing into the concept of choice being between often self-interest and the greater interest, the greater good, as the dark rises and they're called to make choices that, um, that tie them and connect them to, uh, to all of humanity, to the, to the shared world that they inhabit. Another theme, and this is one that is of, of particular interest to me and always has been, is the idea of deep magic. If you've read almost any of these novels or if you've read the Harry Potter series or seen the movies, you have a sense of the idea of deep magic that often comes into the worlds. Um, even, even in Harry Potter where magic happens all the time, there's a deeper magic underneath. Frequently in these novels, the, the really wise um, don't know how to access the deep magic. It's older. It, it happened before magic was created. And almost almost uh, to a T, almost every time, that deep magic is related to the idea of love and the power of love in the world. That magic frequently binds the worlds together. It hints at something behind and before. In Narnia, it's the deep magic that the evil forgot about, the deep magic that saves Aslan. In the, in the atheist uh, golden compass, deep magic is, a, is an important part of the worldview as well. 
and there's a, a quote from one of the witches um, uh, who says, There are powers who speak to us, and there are powers above them, and there are secrets even from the Most High. That idea of deep magic has always felt to me like it's trying to articulate sort of the the most elemental human longing, the most elemental human experience, which really underlies not just fantasy novels, but all religious traditions, our interaction with the world. I think when we talk about that magic, we're trying to get at what it is that we, that we do feel most deeply and to, um, to articulate it or quantify it in some way uh, as magical, as, as underneath all of the other kind of frames we put on the world. Another theme that many of these novels look at is the interplay of destiny and free will. In The Golden Compass, they, there's a, a child who's at the center of the trilogy, and, uh, and Philip Pullman writes, there's a cur- again, I think this is a witch speaking, there's a curious prophecy about this child. She is destined to bring about the end of destiny. But she must do so without knowing what she is doing, as if it were her nature and not her destiny to do it. Almost every, right, it's kind of a, another little catch-22 there, but of course she's successful. Um, <clears throat> almost every hero or heroine in fantasy novels has a prophecy to go with them. And if it doesn't go with the hero, then it goes with the whole novel, a poem that, that we learn more and more of as we read through the trilogy, a poem that's perhaps seen in pieces by different characters as they inhabit their world, that characters discover the meaning of as they go along. I think that idea of prophecy and destiny is tied into the concept of specialness, uniqueness, that goes with the heroes of these worlds, of being part of a particular story that's unfolding in our own lives and in the world at large. But always linked to the prophecy is the idea of free will and moral choice as well. Being able, coming at a certain point to a, to a crossroads and, and knowing that you could go either way. Um, so that, that idea of destiny and free will, the exploration between the two, the idea of prophecy, the deep truth of love, the deep magic there, All of those are really religious themes explored through these fantasy novels and other worlds. And sometimes, as we've said, these worlds, these books are are overtly religious, right? Narnia, you know, C.S. Lewis was created Narnia in part to create another way of looking at the story of Jesus Christ, the story of self-sacrificial love. Um, And there are clear references to the Christian story through the novel. Golden Compass was written specifically as a humanist response and, and, and actually explores religious themes even more overtly than Narnia, I think. One of the key stories throughout the Golden Compass series is the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden and what that fall meant and how it is repeated in, in, in different worlds. Um, and then the apocalyptic battle is really, a, there's a group of people who is trying to go into heaven and kill God. Um, so there's a lot of exploration of kind of the philosophical idea of the death of God. Um, and there's angels and archangels and all, all kinds of stuff. Biblical characters show up in unexpected ways in the, in the Golden Compass. So you can see why I don't see it as an entirely secular novel. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so sometimes these fantasy novels explore religious themes, 
And sometimes religions explore fantasy worlds as well, right? Many traditional religions invite us into an idea of other worlds, of, of other metaphysical worlds, of worlds that exist here that we have access into, invite us into that, that concept of windows between worlds. Now, for those of us centered in the humanist tradition, the idea of exploring other worlds isn't really supposed to interest us that much, right? We're about this world here and now. And so what I wonder, as I've been reading these novels and, um, and, and thinking about my own uh, strong draw to them as a child and now as well, what I've been wondering about is what would happen if those of us rooted in this tradition saw other religious worlds as the kind of metaphor and story, the way that we're invited to see them within fantasy novels. The Golden Compass talks about metaphor as well, using the term, um, this is uh, with a scientist from our world who's talking to the elephant structures with the diamond skeleton and the other world with the seed pods. Anyway, so they're talking about metaphor um, and using the phrase make-like, which is actually, I think, a wonderful way to understand metaphor, a make-like. You know, that's a, that story is a make-like. It helps you to see a deeper truth, that story. So the the elephant person and the scientist are talking about make-likes and the import. The scientist who used to be a nun, actually, are talking about make-likes. Um, so what if we were able to see worlds and fantasy worlds, not just in, in fantasy literature, but in religious literature as well as make-likes? So often, I think, folks who identify as humanist or atheist, agnostic or skeptic, assume that religious texts and religious worlds aren't accessible because, because we don't believe in them in the way that we think you're supposed to. But of course, all stories and worlds, all metaphors are accessible to us in, in that make-like way. And many, including those within traditional religions, would argue that that's the way to look at those stories anyway, that they were created as make-likes, as ways for us to understand and explore morality, to understand and explore metaphysical and theological concepts, who we are in this world. The Golden Compass offers that way to explore theology through story, and it's had a lot of interesting responses from the religious community from being banned by um, uh, very conservative um, Christian uh, pastors to being the Archbishop of Canterbury actually said he thought it should be used in uh, religious studies classes, used as a text, because there's so much rich material there and different ways of looking at, at, at traditional Christian religious stories. So what I've been wondering as I look at all this is, is whether perhaps humanists and progressive religious folks really need fantasy literature more than anyone else, whether we might need fantasy literature as our entryway into metaphorical thinking, into make-like thinking. What is it, I've been asking myself, about telling fantastical stories, impossible stories that draws at us? Why is it that every year there's a new Harry Potter, a new Golden Compass, their bestsellers, their movies are made? What draws us to those kinds of stories in particular? In our religious tradition, we don't always tell those kinds of stories in our liturgy, in how we gather on Sunday mornings. We focus on the possible, the practical, the tangible. Or do we? 
As I've thought more and more about this and I think about our stories, stories of human good and human potential, stories about humanity coming out of the cosmos, the oneness of all people and all things, you know, these are improbable, beautiful, magical stories. And so maybe we need to claim the fantasy of the stories that we tell as well, the way in many ways the Golden Compass series does, although I might not have Metatron, one of the sort of uh, archangels necessarily, but, um, but the Golden Compass which pulls at the idea of consciousness of matter that looks at wisdom and the golden dust of the universe that draws us together. And indeed, fantasy literature is often embraced by agnostics, humanists, and skeptics, um, even as it's sometimes condemned and banned by very conservative Christian folks. I think that we have that desire for mystery, for deep magic, a, a human desire for belief and meaning. I know that my own theology, my own understanding of the metaphysical world has been heavily influenced by fantasy reading and by fantasy movies. If you asked me to describe how I best understood the concept of God, I would probably point you to Star Wars and the the idea of the Force. I think that that often relates for folks within the humanist tradition, this force that connects us uh, and and that guides our lightsabers, um, or similarly, us in the regular world. Um, that's, that's similar to the understanding of collective consciousness in the golden compass. And then, as I, as I referenced earlier, that idea of the deep truth and power of love, self-sacrificial love and deep love that connects us, that we find in Narnia and in Harry Potter. For me, those, those ideas, although I access them through fantasy literature, are really true in many ways. They hold deep meaning in my own life in the world. The Golden Compass, again, addresses directly the possibility of of fantasy to bring meaning into our lives. Mary, that scientist who used to be a nun who now hangs out with the diamond skeleton elephant people, uh, she discovers at some point, and I don't think I'm giving anything away, the truth about matter in the world, which has been kind of an unfolding mystery throughout the series. So she finally discovers it, and, and, uh, and Philip Pullman writes... Had Mary thought there was no meaning in life, no purpose, when God had gone? That was after she stopped being a nun. Yes, she had thought that. Well, there is now, she said aloud, and again louder. There is now. But that brings me to the final theme that connects fantasy books. The theme that for me is the sad one, really. At the end of almost every fantasy novel I've ever read... Magic goes out of the world. The elves sail away on a boat to a different country. The windows are sealed up. The wardrobe closes forever. The window between the worlds is closed, no longer accessible to us. It was always the worst part of reading a fantasy novel for me when I was a child. I wanted so much for those windows to stay open, for the back of the wardrobe someday to get me to the winter wonderland, ideally, obviously, without the White Queen, who was not so good. 
I remember thinking at that time that there was nothing left to explore or discover in the world. It's kind of a, another kind of book hangover, I guess. You know, you, you still want to live in that world, but the author themselves has told you that the world is closed to you. Closing the, the window to magic to the other world always seemed to me like the author's easy way out, like the essays I used to write as a child that would be imaginative and fantastic and then inevitably always ended with the phrase, and then I woke up. You know, I didn't want to have to go through the trouble of figuring out what that would really mean to have that kind of fantasy. Oh, oh it was a dream. I woke up. How much more interesting to imagine, just to imagine and make like that the windows are open that magic is accessible to us, that love does have a power that no one can touch, that the world holds mystery that we can't even imagine. And of course, in so many ways, I think that's true. It's true scientifically that there are things left to explore. It's also true metaphysically, philosophically, as we imagine how we are in the world and how we are connected to each other. I was walking around Brookside Gardens yesterday, and I felt that, of course, it must be true that the windows are somehow open, that there are worlds upon worlds accessible to us. And we see that sometimes in images of landscapes that are even more mystical, more beautiful than the Brookside Gardens Pavilion, landscapes that we can only imagine that perhaps we have a chance to see once in a lifetime. And then sitting this morning in my office as I, as I finished kind of thinking about this platform, my desk is, is right there on the window to 16th Street, and, and 16th Street is pretty non-mystical. Um, and, you know, so I'm right there. I can see the lawn, and, and my desk is there, and the, there's a floor-to-ceiling window right next to me. And as I was typing, um, I, I caught something out of the corner of my eye and turned and saw, and there was a groundhog. <laughs> Which groundhogs are big, actually. There was a groundhog walking right next to really, you know, six inches from me, right there along the building, along the window. And I thought again, you know, there are surprises in the world. <laughs> there is magic sometimes. I think the mystical and the magical is really how we experience the world. In some ways, I would argue that it's what propels forward not just theologians, but philosophers, too, and what propels forward even scientists who quest for the truth, but who start with questions, who start with wonderings about the world, about how we connect to each other. We look for answers about the world and for for proof that there's more there than meets the eye. At least it's good, I think, to let our minds explore in that way sometimes. And out of the corner of my eye, just beyond my ability to see, I just know that sometimes there's a talking badger wearing a fancy hat waiting to invite me on an adventure.